Good evening, everyone. How are you all doing? Good. Thank you for spending your Monday evening with us. I um, really appreciate it. Um, my name is Teresa Lola. I am a poet um, and yeah, very happy to, to have you. Um, today is on behalf of Free Word and Spread the Word and also Shelter. So a huge thank you to all three. Um, today is titled We Love and Rage Generation Rent, and that's all we're going to be talking about today. Um, just before we start, some housekeeping. The toilets are located at the back of the hall. If you'd like to go to the toilets, it's just straight out from there and turn to your right. You can exit at the top of the, the stairs. Um, Free Word, if you do not know, is an arts organization focused on the power and politics of words. Um, and the current season is titled Writing Our Way Home, which explores our fundamental right to shelter, belonging, and safety. You can find a wider program at the box office. Um, and the installation you can see on the walls around is called Writing Our Way Home. And it was curated by a Brixton-based group Resolve Collective, and it's really brilliant. I don't know if you've got into see round and um, the scaffolding and also at the cafe. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna get kicking. In terms of today, um, the brilliant poets Amal Saeed, Serafima Kennedy, and I, joined by Gabriel Akamo and Miura, had recorded conversations about home. And those conversations will be played today, accompanied by illustration by the fantastic illustrator, Olivia Twist. So these conversations, there are four recorded conversations. Each are 10 minutes long, and after each conversation, there will be a poetry reading by all the poets. We'll be reading one poem each, inspired by those conversations. Our conversations were inspired by um, research projects by Shelter, two particular research projects. One, a vision for social housing, the future of housing and home, and the second, a longitudinal study of housing outcomes and well-being in private rented accommodation. Through campaigns and advice, Shelter has helped millions of people in this country. And so we'd like to thank Shelter for their support. And without further ado, I'm gonna call on Sophie Wilkes-Verk, the activism officer from Shelter, just to talk a little bit about the work that Shelter does. Hi, uh, I feel like I need to tiptoe a little bit. Um, I think, first of all, I'd like to say thank you very much, Teresa. Um, most of, I think, the credit for this um, event tonight has to go to Teresa and her amazing friends and colleagues that have put all this together. Um, so whilst I've been in Shelter since the summer, Shelter really started in the 1960s, in 1966. And it was out of a response to massive um, housing crisis uh, right across the country and the poverty that people were living in. And um, sadly, we are still seeing a housing crisis and what we're now calling a housing emergency. Um, it's something ridiculous, like two, 277,000 families or households are currently um, listed as homeless today. There are still thousands of families and children living in temporary accommodation. People are dying on our streets every year. And I think just the stats for last year was that I think it was 629 rough sleepers died on the streets because there are not... Um, there is a lack of housing, there is a lack of social support. Um, and as Teresa said, we've um, developed our kind of research and um, policy experience over the years. And a lot of the work we do is to try and influence government policy and to make changes. And that's one of the reasons why the social housing report came out um, with January 9, uh, 2018. Um, and that was to sort of 
come together with a range of different people across society and figure out what it is we can do and to put, put the kind of housing emergency into context and propose some solutions. Um, so there are a number of, of things that we've, we've suggested, which I don't remember all of them right now, but I think the main thing to emphasise is that the lack of social housing and the selling off of the social housing stock over the years is one of the key reasons why we're in such an emergency right now. Um, we've got, like I said, like 11 million people in the private rented sector right now, um, and the ending of your tenancy in private rented sectors is one of the leading causes of homelessness today, um, but there was also rampant discrimination across the rented sector on those that are receiving um, housing benefit or any sort of social support, which is a massive issue. Um, so I feel like that's a bit of an overview of the, the issues that we kind of work on at the moment and we're really pushing our social housing campaign. So it's really nice to hear that other people are also interested in this issue as well. So I think that's probably enough for me. Um, I hope that's given a, an interesting background in what we're working on at the moment. Thank you so much, Sophie. Before the first recording, I'm just going to introduce the, the poets and I'll read just the small section of their, their bios which go on endlessly because they've all done amazing things. Amal Saeed is a Danish-born Somali photographer and poet based in London. Her photographs have been featured in Vogue, New York Times. She won the Wasafiri magazine's New Writing Prize for poetry in 2015. Seraphima Kennedy is a poet and journalist. Her work has been published in The Guardian and The White Review. She's a member of the collective Malaika's Poetry Kitchen. Miura is a spoken word performer and presenter and has a theater show on at the end of the month titled Divided by Them, which will be shown in London. Gabriel Akamo is a poet and actor. He's a Barbican Young Poet alumni and is currently working on his debut pamphlet. He has been commissioned by St. Paul's Cathedral, South Bank Centre, and more. Without further ado, the first conversation was on what are the positive impacts of establishing a home. Question, so we can do it together or just start with the first, which is what are the positive impacts of establishing a, a home? Safety, right? Like somewhere you feel safe, um, somewhere you know where you can sleep, I think that's one of the things is that a lot of people don't have that and that always kind of makes me incredibly sad that people don't have somewhere where they know that they can go and sleep in and rest. Um, not just eat, but just safe, to feel safe. Somewhere you can lock the door and feel like no one's going to come get me. I can close my eyes. Um, because we were talking about this the other day. Um, my friend works with young children um, who don't have safe homes and so one of the things is like establishing with them um you can come here and you can feel safe right like i think about it all the time to like be young and to not have somewhere where you can go and like clean yourself and, and all those things so for me the first thing that comes to mind is safety it's one of the things that you're supposed to be able to teach your children is that the world is a safe place you know, and it's very difficult to do that if on the way into your home or in your home there isn't a feeling of safety, whether that's because of the conditions, the surrounding area, or because of the people who are in the building. Um, you know, if we're families living in temporary accommodation, um, often they're being forced to share, um, to share living quarters, bathrooms and kitchens with people who've just come out of prison for violent offences or people who are being monitored. You know, so there's a huge number of families who are living in temporary accommodation, which is unsafe and unsanitary. 
And so to not be able to offer that to your children, that's something I'm thinking about particularly at the moment, um, is it, just, just a really terrifying prospect. And I think it has a really detrimental impact on the life of a whole family and by extension, a whole community. Because if people grow up feeling that the world isn't safe, then the natural response is to be hypervigilant. The natural response is to respond to aggression with aggression. You know, the natural response, there's a whole raft of other knock-on effects that are really detrimental to society as a whole. So I think what you're saying about safety is so, so important. And as a society, to be able to provide that for everyone, it should be absolutely fundamental that our homes should be safe, that our buildings should be safe. Yeah, that's true. Thinking about that safety in terms of infrastructure, I was thinking about kind of like the domestics of, of safety, just how people, some people come from abusive homes or their house is not, or their home is not necessarily a safe space to return to. I mean, for me, sometimes I kind of take for granted the feeling of like, after a long day, I know I'm going to go back home and my family is there and I'm going to be like, they're going to make me happy. And it's just like, we take that for granted. Um, and not everyone has that um, in, in different ways. So thinking about, yeah, infrastructure of safety, but also people feeling at peace in their home and it yeah. feeling like some sort of home and it's not just this house that you're squatting in or, or sleeping in. It really does feel like home to and you. And long-term, long-term as long -term well. Long-term home as like well. Like, that's the thing for me specifically. It's like knowing that if my, my parent, or my mom loses her job, my dad loses his job, can't pay it. There's no, so, like, there's no net, there's no savings. There is no savings. You can't pay the rent for that month, then you get the eviction notices, right? And so getting that, it's the scariest thing because you're like, we, we, where are we going to go? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, the only thing for us right now is because we're much older, right? So it's yeah. like, okay, we're going to figure out a way. But when you're much younger, when you have a family with much younger children and you don't have a social net, you don't have um, family perhaps that can just yeah, take you is, in. Yeah. Um, you don't have any of those things. It really scares me because there are so many people who are living like that, right? From month Hands to month. That, yeah, yeah. And, and just don't know if they're going to be okay for the next couple of months. It's scary. It's an anxiety, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really scary. Yeah, yeah. I was literally watching a documentary of um, Thomas Cook, the um, travel agency that has just like collapsed and they were interviewing all the employees who don't know what they're going to do now and they've just lost their jobs and they're thinking about like they don't know where they're going to live and it's just like, yeah, there's just so much, so many layers to it and I was just thinking about that and it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking and they're home like this one place that they can now kind of retreat to and feel safe in the midst of like this turmoil in their life. They might not have that anymore. I think there's always the worry of like stability um, that comes with it. Um, like you said, if your parents lose their job and they can't afford rent for the next month, what then what? Like yeah. there's always the question of survival, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also, especially around like housing and money and economy, people are afraid, not afraid, but they, there's like a certain shame attached to asking for help, um, which I hate, <laughs> but it is the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people are too afraid to ask for help because it's like, oh, how, a home is what you're meant to have. Like, it's a given, but it's really not a given for a lot of people. And I think people forget that as well. Mm -hmm. And people are often let down when they do, when they do ask for help. Mm -hmm. and what there's, I've noticed recently, 
the kind of the, 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 the gap between the sort of public discourse, like when you go and you look at what's available in terms of support for somebody, and then when that person then goes to try and access it yeah. and the experience they have, which is so different to what, you know, to what they're sort of told, what the government yeah. says is available yeah. or what the local authority says is available. And then that, that person's experience is often so brutal mm -hmm. and so dehumanising that actually, you know, they'd be forgiven for thinking they didn't have a right to a home or to stability or to any of these, or family life, you know, these are things which are kind of, you know, enshrined in the Human Rights Act, for example, the right to family life, like, you know, but often people's like, lived experience is, almost, is completely at odds with that, you know, it's just absolutely devastating, I think. It affects your well-being as well, because you kind of feel like you're not, or you're made to feel like you're not as worthy as, as others in some ways. Yeah. So anything to add or should we... Um, yeah, it's just jumping off what Serafimo was saying about you know the disparity between what they say is available versus what is available. It's, um, there's also um, the how how home is who defines what constitutes like home and shelter. Because um, I think like yeah, maybe take this with like a spoon of salt. But um, I remember either reading or hearing somewhere that. Um, like like the official definition of shelter was changed, so it basically so it basically allowed for a for tents. So if so, someone technically wasn't homeless if they ha if they were living in a tent, or there were certain things that they couldn't act, yeah. that they weren't able to access because they had some kind of covering from the elements. But when we but when we think of home, we think of like someone with a door and a lock. Um, somewhere where you can actually sleep without fear that like someone's gonna mm. yeah, yeah like yeah because people do horrible things and like you know urinate on tents and set them on fire and that sort of thing so yeah how, um, it's kind of it, despite things things are getting worse but because of the way definitions and things are changing it's um, because of the way definitions and things are changing it's as though it's made to look statistically as if as if things are either staying the same or getting better. Um, it's similarly to how they, how like unemployment or whatever was like defined, was redefined on a census. So even though people, they'll say, yeah, people are, people are getting more jobs, but like look at the jobs that people are getting. Um, so yeah, all of these things. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point actually. Because there was that case, wasn't there, was of a young person who's about 17, I think, to, I can't remember which council it was in, but the, the local authority had, you know, owed the young person help because of their age, but they were actually living in a tent for like a very long period of time. And that was totally um, within the law. Um, I can't remember the name of the authority, but it was quite a sort of big, big case. I really, like, I really like the question, Theresa. I really like the, the sort of positive, the positive. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm establishing I'm like a home. Back, like, I think I said positive. And, <laughs> <laughs> and how quickly we've turned it around. <laughs> uh. but, but maybe that speaks to a kind of wider anxiety, wider awareness. You know, if anyone's family have ever had an experience of homelessness, then that isn't something that is easily forgotten, is it? You know, and I've, I've, I've known people put themselves at risk of continued violence because they weren't, willing to go into temporary accommodation because they'd been they'd been in that kind of um insecure housing for, for such a long period of time before they wouldn't do it again mm -hmm. so you know it's, it is so 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 important hi guys um so i mean shout out to Teresa, shout out to shelter shout out to all of you guys being here today um 
So, I mean, I've moved quite a bit and we moved from house to house. Um, and when you're kind of doing all that moving, um, I, I struggled to think of like a childhood of like when I was like happy and where I had somewhere to play and like toys and all those things, right? Because we didn't have that stability. Um, and it's only this year that all these stories like came back to me and I was like, oh my God, some funny things happened here and some cool things happened here. And I'm like, oh, cool. I did have a childhood. Like it's there, like way back, but it's there. Um, and I'm going to read you a poem called In the Beginning. I don't need any pictures to remember Hanover Circle, our first real garden, mum's pots and pans missing because we had an imaginary family that needed feeding, and we took turns being the mother, the stone path reimagined as a road leading to the bank, the centre of our fence, the largest ATM without limit. Father went when he was home, but mostly it was mum, so we fought hard to walk that distance for the others. Maybe they made me the father that time, circling the pots and pans, when our real mother found us and took her things back. I remember the noise of that same night, my little sister climbing onto the roof, our cousin having tied a scarf around her middle, attaching the other side to herself. They both kept quiet, but I wanted to speak up when our parents screamed, you could have died to ask if they'd seen the neighbor's garden, all the trees in the entire world had gathered, and we'd all need to be much taller to take it in. Their walkway curved, leading to a pond, every kind of fish, and ours didn't look so real anymore. Thank you. Hello. I'm Serafima. Um, I talk a lot, it turns out. <laughs> I was like, I thought I was just making like one or two quick points and I just go on and on and on, so sorry about that. Um, this poem, and huge thanks to Teresa and Spread the Word and Free Word and Shelter for organising this amazing series and for inviting us um, to read tonight. Um, this poem initially uh, was about overcrowding for me. Um, or, or sort of the sort of impact of that on my family indirectly. Um, but through this process of being involved with, with tonight, um, I began to see it actually, as the title calls it, as a gift. I hadn't realised before the impact of what homelessness, um, the impact of that on my mother and my sister, who were homeless before I was born, um, after my mother left an abusive relationship. Um, anyway, I'll just read you the poem. The gift. I was born on a carpet scorched by seance fire at 20 past four on the day before Halloween. My mother had the gift. She'd been a warrior in a previous life. And in this one, she'd run with Italian principes and the Aga Khan. She was a siren perched on a rock. My father arrived in the evening, brought a guitar, sang Bob Dylan songs, placed his hand on my forehead and was gone. The name I was given means burning ones. It came to my mother as she pushed me into the world. In her mind, at least, I was already marked. In her mind, I'd passed through fire. But it wasn't just me. Zed, daughter of light, X, warrior of God, 
Y, the Archangel, God's messenger, all of us, light and fire, burned before birth, and we came down blazing. Thank you. Um, so in, in my life, I've done a lot of moving, moving of, of houses, moving of memories. Um, and I think all of that has made me really cherish what home can be when it feels right. Um, and this poem is titled, Home is my favorite soundtrack. Track one, 7 p.m., the clock coughs and we walk into the living room with a tray of food like a passport. We enter what becomes our own world. No borders, a texture of knives here to cut our voice. Track two. My sister's laughter in a C major note harmonizes with mine as we watch any TV show suitable to watch in front of our mum. Home is the longest commercial break we have from life. My mother nearly loses her voice trying to prove her point on why the lead character of the TV show should not have died. We have to remind her it's just a show. Track three. My brother sits on the couch like a king on a throne. Yesterday, someone at his school called him something he can't repeat without crying. He carried the sadness in his bowl of his eyes and emptied it into his bedroom, the only place he feels safe to cry in. Each hug we press into his skull is a prayer. Track four. Our pictures rest on the windows like a non-linear like non time portal. If you go to the kitchen, I'm five years old. To the living room, I'm 21. To my bedroom, I'm 14. In a picture that I promised got 1,000 likes on Bebo back in 2007. <laughs> track five. If the track playing when you wake up on a Saturday morning is gospel music, it means it's cleaning day and your mom will, access, will assess your room like a teacher does your report card. We clean this house as if it is our body. We know all its frail parts because we know all its frail parts because we know all of our frail parts. We don't want to imagine this place not existing. Thank you. The second conversation is what do you want your future home to look like? What do you want your future home to, to look like? So when you imagine your future home, what do you see? It's so weird because um, I'm thinking about this all the time now. Um, I think it's because I'm getting older, but I've always really been into interior design and I didn't know why. I didn't realise it, but like just being in a, a very peaceful place just gives me so much peace. Like being in a place with plants and nice like, you know, like a nice couch, like all these things really give me peace. Um, and it was last year because so we've, I've never really owned a bedroom like a bedroom's never really been mine and I remember this photography series a while ago where it was like chronicling teenagers bedrooms and all the ways that people make a bedroom theirs right like things on the wall and things all over and stuff like that and because we've we've always been in like social housing and um you're not allowed to change certain things you're not allowed to do things on the wall stuff like that um for the first time so we were given a house right so we've been there for now like five six years now and so when you're two years in, one year in, they say that you can make changes to the house now. So I remember the, for the first time, my mum being like, oh, you could do what you want now. And I couldn't, I couldn't touch it for like a really, really long time. And it was only last year, um, 
so after I graduated where I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to use my money and I'm going to change this space because I, this is where I spend so much of my time in this bedroom. So like I painted my walls and like I got new furniture and like I got a new bookshelf and like got plants and it's like such a beautiful space for me to be in now. But I didn't think any of that was possible for me because I was like, I'm always going to be moving. Like, we're always going to be in a new space. No space is ever going to be yours. Um, so just even little tiny things, making a place your own, for me, has completely just changed, like, my mental health. Um, so, yeah, so for the future, when I think about it, sometimes it does make me excited. Like, okay, one day I might have, like, my own place, um, despite all of the hardships and all the money <laughs> and, all, yeah. and all that stuff. There is a place in my head where that is possible for me. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of my, my future home, but it's just the thought of that is just, it's just scary me. So my, all, a lot of my family live together, like live in, in Orpington. Um, and that, I don't want to say it's been gentrified, but like the house prices are like skyrocketing. And so ideally I would want to live around the area, but I, I don't know if I can afford to. I want to be positive and say that I can. But like when I think of my future home, I think of somewhere like isolating and somewhere far away from... From all of them because I can't even <laughs> afford do you get what I mean and, and that kind of scares me and I've always growing up I've always shared a room with my with my sister so I've never really had my own space as well and I kind of like I can't imagine even having my own space because I don't know what kind of space I can afford mm -hmm. but I do like dream about like designing my right? room yeah. and having a bookshelf and like yeah. doing like having a typewriter just like to yeah. pretend I'm using it or, or, or like art on the walls I know you like, think about yeah. all these things but it's like for now it's just on Pinterest but like where I just see like I don't know like house prices and, and like rent just moving up it's just kind of scary because I'm like who is who is the audience for, for this it's like I'm, I'm sure people some people can afford it some young people can but it's just yeah it's just kind of scary yeah yeah I think about I think about my future I mean I think I think like plants space <laughs> kind of just like yeah, almost, almost with like with like like a panic room energy where you can just like you go there and like <laughs> yeah. you just lock like the rest yeah. of the world is gone. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. it. That's it. Um, and either with like a balcony or a garden. Oh yeah. Or both. I would like both. Oh. Um, yeah. With and a skylight. Like as so like yeah, I've got. Oh, okay. <laughs> because like you know, if if like. Again, similarly, I've, I've not had my own space. Um, I, like, growing up, I haven't had my own space. I think I got my own bedroom, like, a couple of months ago. And even yeah. then, it's because... <laughs> even then, it's still... But, yeah, it doesn't... I say my own bedroom, but it still doesn't feel like mine. Like, my my things... My things are kind of, like, stored... Almost, yeah, but I, I still keep my things in, like, bags and boxes. Oh, because, wow. And, like, cases and things, because nothing... It doesn't feel like, you know, my space is mine or it doesn't feel like I can put something there permanently. Um, so, I don't know, I've, I've, I've decided to like, I've decided to like dream big without using Pinterest because like, yeah, like if, like if I can't, if I can't afford, <laughs> um, yeah, if I, if I can't, if I can't afford it, then like, why not, why not just keep dreaming? Cause like even, even the crap places are just like, you know, a billion for a shoebox. Well, not, not literally, but like it's, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking outside London. I can't. I don't want to live in London. It's just too expensive. 
money. Yeah, I've really, I've gone on Right Move and I've like searched like different locations and tried to find out how much it it is. You know, if 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 Brexit's too hot and <laughs> and Scotland and Scotland become independent, that's where I'm going. Like, <laughs> it's cold right now. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I used to there, it's cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cold and darkness I versus like <laughs> poverty and isolation. Like, I think. <laughs> Man. Um, I don't know, in terms of me and my dream place, I mean, you guys mentioned plants, I'm right there <laughs> with that. Um, I'm like, me and my family moved around quite a lot when we first came to the country because, um, I was born in Denmark, but then... Oh, me too. Where in Denmark? <laughs> ah, I was born in Denmark too. Where? Yeah, Where are you born? Um, Aarhus? I mean, actually, oh my God, clear, my family but it's from like... There. Um, I was born in Udens. I don't know how to say it. Udense? Udens. Udens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're saying I, I've, I've had it. I've had... I've, I've, it rings a bell, but I don't remember. It's like an island. Well, it's like it's <laughs> from Copenhagen. That's so oh, weird. That's mad. Oh, wow. <laughs> you might as well be me, Denmark. When did you come here? Um, what year? 2003! No, no way! way. <laughs> 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 oh, oh my god! Okay, sorry, interrupted you. Carry on. <laughs> I, I've, okay, sorry, no. I've never met someone else. No, I know, really. Yeah, um, so <laughs> that I feel like, because um, I grew up in a village there, that like heavily influenced what I would want in my own dream space, because like it's very green and it's very like naturey um, and like a lot of space. And then we moved here because um, Denmark's great, but like has its own issues. And then we moved here, and London was like such a different like experience. But I've grown up here and lived here most of my life, so I see myself more as a Londoner than like a Danish person. Um, and yeah, but we moved around quite a lot in East London in the first couple of years, um, and even now at times. But I moved to Norwich for uni like three years ago, and that was the first time I got like given my own space mm. to decorate, and that was really really exciting because like this is this is your space to create your like you said a sanctuary mm. and a space for you to just get away and breathe, and and that's essentially what I would want in a dream house, like just my own space to be myself and be surrounded by things that like calm me down. Um, but London, now that I've graduated and moved back, London, London prices are a lot. And London lifestyle in general is, a, is, is so expensive. I've forgotten how expensive it was until I moved back and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> my bank account is literally just going to the TFR right now. Um, but I think right now, because um, like last year, me and my family um, had to move because we couldn't afford our rent anymore for the place that we'd stayed for the last 10 years. Um, and my parents didn't tell me until I finished my exams because they were like, we didn't want to stress you out, but we got to move out by the end of the month. And I was like, what? <laughs> that's, that's mad. Like, how are we going to find a place that we can afford? One, because it's London, it's crazy prices. Like, the rent that was being increased would already it, compared to like other housing prices be considered as okay mm -hmm. but for us it wasn't feasible so um um we managed to find a place thank god um and we've been living there for the last i want to say year and a half but i've been living there for like half a year now since i moved back and yeah me and my sister are taking turns switching between the one room and then um the living room mm -hmm. so that's a bit tough but i think being back, the first thing I would want to 
to do is to, like, because now that we're over 18, um, me and my sister have both taken it from, like, our own responsibility that we have to get a house for our parents first before we can dream of our own place. Um, and, yeah, so I think I haven't been dreaming about my own place as much recently, but I think I definitely want, like, the, the, the room I had in Norwich would be representative of my, like, safe space, I'd say. And lots of plants, lots of light, um, and just, yeah, I think space in general, because everything feels very cramped right now that I'm back. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Did you want to? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was reflecting while, while you were both talking, actually, um, while, while everyone was talking, actually, of um, how the sort of psychological impact of space and, like, how it kind of really affects... Like, you were saying you've got your own room now, and yet, you, you, you know, you don't really feel like it's... You're, you're talking about how, how long it took you to kind of be able to make changes and stuff. And I think that's so important, because it's something that, like, does... You know, that I don't think is reflected upon enough. Like, the psychological... Like, how, how when you live in a kind of cramped living space, it, it impact, you have a cramped mind. Wow. <laughs> wow. myself, sorry. We all agree. So I'll tell you what, my, 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 my story, I was born, um, so I grew up in a one-bedroom flat with my mum and my brother and my sister, and so I shared a room with all of them until I was 18, went to uni. Um, oh, no, no, my sister had already left, but anyway. Um, and so I remember going to uni <laughs> and being in this shared flat, and everyone was like, oh, my God, these flats are so disgusting. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, I've <laughs> got my own room. Yeah. There's a kitchen. Yeah. I can smoke. I can yeah. do whatever I want, you know. Yeah. And I just remembered like, being so, like, feeling like, such a sense of liberation, like such a strong sense of, like, this is amazing. And I was like, oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought it was just incredible. Um, but since then, I've always lived in, like, rented um, accommodation or, you know, house shares or... Mm. And even now, I live with my partner, but it's... It's sort of his place, and obviously there's a key, he has a huge mortgage. But, and I had, I had quite a powerful experience a few years ago when I was like, on, a, on a mountainside in the Italian countryside. And I just remember like being on this mountain and just literally just thinking, do you know what would just be so amazing? Be able to just build your own place yeah. and just to be able to not owe anyone yeah. anything. Exactly. So no one to be able to turf you out and for you to like not have to worry about a mortgage. Obviously, that's a dream. Mm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? For it to be yours and and that is just that i don't know it felt like such a profound feeling and it's not something that i ever imagine that that i will have or that many of us will have but imagine imagine if you could just imagine if you had somewhere that was just yours and you could just i just thought i would just feel so free compared to the sort of housing stresses that so many of us live with do you know what i mean but it was such a liberating feeling in a way because i was like wow Maybe it's possible. <laughs> and that's, my, that's what I would hope my future home to look like. Somewhere just free and, yeah, something like that. They should have, like, a, you know, when they do, like, where are they now, like, 10 years later? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, MTV <laughs> Cribs version. Yeah. <laughs> 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 back in the mum. <laughs> Hopefully not, no. Um, yeah. Um, I think I've done enough talking in that clip, so... <laughs> So I'm just going to read the poem. Um, it's called The Wasteland. I'm a gardener in another life, and I feel safe with my hands in soil, feeding anyone that comes close enough with things I've grown. If I'm not growing vegetables and herbs, I want daffodils and tulips, but they won't survive this weather. I'm never not ready to be by their door, to bump into them in an alleyway, however dark, 
to beg a new wardrobe, a smaller, softer body that comes forward when it's called, trains disappointment to leave the room, accepts whatever it is given, never blocking or using the door for what it's for, keeping the pest out. Still, it's taken root in the crop. Really, I'm talking about my body, because even after crying and admitting, I can't do love, I'm too weak, which was a lie because I left the bed and walked into the world expecting color for the dead to come back to life. And I thought the new wardrobe I begged for to match my smaller body, which will make the men more forgiving, take it back. I'll have to live with myself and try to forget his begging on the phone and try to forget his ex-girl who is his new girl, but overall his ex-girl and prepare to ignore the comments when they came the comparisons to Hani, who chased every man away, and Nadirfo, who threw a shoe until he didn't come to her door anymore. I want to celebrate Nadirfo and her shoe. I want to be brave, to knock down the wall to make room for light, to wear the overalls and paint it white, stick two shelves up for the extra books, a pretty vase for fresh flowers, say it aloud. So much dying has happened in this room. I want another chance. Thank you. So um, I was, in sort of responding to this question, I was thinking about, again, homelessness and um, migration and how uh, people bring with them the home that they have often had previously. I was thinking specifically about my um, grandmother who left Eastern Europe um, fling the pogroms when she was five. Pogrom. What did she bring? Her mother's cooking pot. What did she bring? Her language wrapped in a cloth bag and tied. What else? A village where skies turn to pitch at night. What else? Her brother's footsteps as he walked away to school. Will she thrive? She will speak three languages. Will she thrive? She will take three names. Will she thrive? She will bear four children. Tell me, will she thrive? She will lose her accent. Her tongue will take root in a grandchild's brain. How will she thrive? Her husbands will die. How will she thrive? Her children will leave. Answer me, will she thrive? In the snow, she unpacks latkes fig rolls, broth for her children, a forest, three bandits, her uncle's body, a child hiding beneath floorboards, holding her breath. Thank you so much, Serafima. Um, this poem is titled, I want every home I ever live in to feel like the cot I had as a baby. I want every home I ever live in to feel like the cot I had as a baby. I knew if I cried, someone would rush in and carry me from the fire scratching my throat. The legs of the cot were steady. No one pretending to be a kind visitor pushed it violently or pulled it from its root. It was common courtesy to keep the body inside alive. The cot had four walls, each wall made up of poles with spaces between. The architects considered breathing space knew a body does not have to suffocate in its own house. The walls of the court were white, but I'll add some color to my future house, have it blue as if the sky came to visit. 
I think not of just my future house, but the world outside it. The floor outside my cot was my parents' room floor, the rugs soft as melted candle wax. Sometimes when crawling, I stepped on a few scattered Legos and it stung like an iron burn, but otherwise my legs returned back to my own. I am aware that the roads outside my future house be made of asphalt, and there are bumps that feel like Legos, except they are mountain-sized and bruised bodies are being proof that they exist. Proof of how tough it is out there. By there, I mean outside the home, or I mean within the home, whichever you prefer. I want every home I ever feel I ever live in to feel like the cot I had as a baby. I was never evicted from the cot, only evolved from it. If only life were that simple afterwards. And our third conversation is on private renting. What is the present form of private renting? So what are the issues with it? And, and what changes do you think um, could happen in the, in the future? What changes do we think could happen or what changes do we think should happen? Should or could. Okay. Either way, it's about looking at the future. So what is the, the current issues with private renting and what changes um, can happen? Look at this. <laughs> so that obviously has the. Well, I'm happy to start if, if you like. Yeah, I sure. Mean, or if, if anyone wants time to read that part. So you start, okay, you start, and I'll say some of the I mean, yeah, without creating any facts or figures, I mean, I think the, the current problem with private renting is the fact that it's so often it's seen as an investment. And so you have this sort of financialization of housing, mm. which isn't it exactly a human right, but it, it, in, the, in sort of human rights legislation, it does kind of, it is mentioned, you know, it is mentioned um, as something that is just really fundamental to people, as, you know, food, shelter. Um, and so that kind of view of housing as an investment and not a place to live, necessarily, is, I think, a huge problem. Um, was that the question? Yeah, interesting. That yeah, yeah, the... no, that's, that's very, very true. <laughs> because, of course, then you have all the, you know, then, then that leads to, you know, property investment as speculation, people buying property here um, without wanting to live in it necessarily and allowing, you know, and then there not being adequate supply as well. Then you also have issues with the quality of housing as well. So quality of built and supply as well, where we've got so many unsafe homes, um, same, you know, lack of... Um, uh, building regulations that aren't fit for purpose and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, all, what's linked to all of that is the expense. That's very true. It's mm -hmm. interesting you, you say that about the um, unsafe homes and all of that, because looking at um, shelters research, they, they had a list of the major reasons why people wanted their support. Um, and it was land, landlord disputes, poor conditions, repair problems, eviction, debt issues. And so I think that definitely speaks to what you're, you're saying. I, I think another issue or something that could change in the future. So there was an article and, and um, Sadiq Khan, the present mayor of London, was talking about introducing rent controls. At the moment, he doesn't have the power to do so. But I think that could make, make a huge, that could definitely make a huge difference because looking at a lot of the, the case studies in, in Shelter's report, the main issue people had with private renting was just the cost of it. Like, it was just too expensive. And we're talking about expensive house prices and that also ties in with expensive rent and how it's just climbing. And I think that's rooted in the financialization of like housing. So I think that rent controls would 
I think would make a huge difference if, if it's something that's possible and people wouldn't be kind of stuck in this anxiety of mm. what's the rent going to be next year yeah. or the year after. It's so easy also just to get behind on it. It's very, very easy. Cause, um, I think it's called arrears, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember because I like look over all my mum's forms and like help filling it out everything and all of that stuff. And the anxiety, like the end of last year, um, where she was like paying back a lot of stuff um, that she owed and sometimes she didn't even know she owed this or she owed that mm -hmm. and so and, and then also that that kind of um, anxiety of having to call them and then people being like passing you around from person to person mm -hmm. and not getting these straight answers and, and being like okay well this is how much I have left at the end of the month but this is how much I owe like it was really really ridiculous so just the insecurity of you know just n sometimes keeping up with it and then getting up with it and then kind of losing control sometimes as well you know I don't know I don't know how to explain that but well it often happens as well when if people are kind of in work but reliant on some form of benefits oh as we well. got caught yeah so and my mum and they yeah. sometimes they make mistakes yeah oh yeah they, they might make, make mistakes, mistakes. Yeah. for a year and then, yeah. and then suddenly someone is in arrears of like you know three or five grand in mm. housing benefit yeah. yeah and then of yeah. course they get really militant about claiming it back you know and then of course do you know what I mean? so yeah. Then yeah. Often, you know that does happen that's what yeah. happens that that's what, what i was trying to figure out that's what happened well. yeah. she was overpaid housing benefit right, or something and so like so they were like well you didn't tell us that you started a new job and the new job was like yeah yeah so it, ha it happened to so many people I know, so many of my aunties as well going through the exact same thing. But um, it's like, so she started a new job, but it's it's not one of those jobs. Oh, it's zero hour, zero hour mm. contract. So she doesn't know how much she's going to make sometimes yeah. at the end of the month. So, um, and then to get that letter and it was so like, mm. you need to pay this. And to be like, I had no idea. Like, where did this come from? You know, and dealing with that insecurity, yeah. that was that's crazy. Yeah. It's really mad. What do you think needs to change in that case or what do you hope would change? The thing is, like, so for instance, for my mom, um, so not knowing how much she makes a month, you know, it's just certain understanding that certain people just don't know sometimes what yeah, they're going to make yeah. in that month because of the way that the jobs are set up, right? Um, and that just makes everything even harder. So I don't know how to phrase that. I don't know how to, to say that, but I don't know. I don't know. Just, I think maybe greater understanding. Yeah, in that way, of people's yeah. circumstances and, and not being able to make rent in that way. That, that same shelter, just, just going back to what you were saying earlier about um, unsafe homes, that, that same shelter report says that one out of seven homes in the country are, are considered a risk to someone's health. And I think that's talking about not socially rented homes, but private homes as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, these, these facts and figures that, that you've printed off, um, Teresa, you know, a lot of it is about private renting, the insecure, you know, there's so many stories of people complaining about the conditions, electrical faults, damp, roof leaks, and, and, you know, as soon as they complain about conditions and suddenly their contract isn't renewed or the rent is put up or, you know, in order to pay for the repairs, and actually that's the landlord's responsibility. The shelters call for a, a building, a, a regulator for, for, um, for um, homes, for all renters, actually, not just for social housing, is really important. Um, Apparently that was that was supposed to be in the Queen's speech today, but I'm not sure if it was. Oh yeah, I saw it was trending, but I didn't, yeah. know the Queen's I didn't yeah. have time to look at it. We're reporting live, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I definitely agree with the whole poor conditions and then that leading mm -hmm. on to landlord disputes, because sometimes the landlord can just turn around and be like, Well, 
that's not my responsibility or something, but it is. And then it's you having to go out of your way to fix that yourself and hire people yourself to go fix that. And then it's, it's still a continuous problem, sorry. Um, and that, that's just ridiculous, in my opinion. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it happens so many times. Yeah, it's it a does. lack of rights, really, isn't it? Like a lack of rights. Or understanding of yeah. their, their rights. A lot of the, apparently, when you move into a, a new private rented home, the um, landlord is supposed to give you a book of rights, mm -hmm. your rights as a tenant. I don't know if... Mm -hmm. Yeah, but apparently it's, it's like in the law they're supposed to give you... I'm the other Danish person from the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Teresa and the other poets and Shelter and Spread the Word and everyone for coming today. Um, I moved a lot, I've moved a lot, me and my family moved a lot growing up and still to this day. Um, and one consistent thing that we saw recur in all of our, all the houses that we lived in would be, out of all the issues, would be mold. Mold comes up all the time. Um, no matter how many things, how many things you do to try and fix it, it's just, an, it just felt like a constant reminder of like the cycle we were stuck in. Um, so this piece is called Where the Mold Follows. It grows in the corner of your eye, hiding in the parts of yourself you don't want to see, stretching itself awake in the mornings whenever you hide from the light, spreading quickly in the shadows of anonymity in the night, between the comfort of closed quarters and huddled breaths. You're six when you first see it. Your fingers dance across the shades of speckled greens that scatter across beige, but you still stare in awe and ask your your father who yanks you back and scolds you if it is like the, if it is like the decorations printed on the pavement you, your feet awkwardly stumbled onto when you first landed on this land of cobbled greys, being cautious to skip over the curses cracked into the ground. You are eight when it consumes you, overwhelms you till your teenage years. It is not just mere decorations now. It is the whole surface of your walls, it is tar filling your lungs, suffocating you of any clean air in this windowless cube. Your parents tire from constantly having to scrub at the shame that coats their skin, but it is sunken too far deep beyond the surface now. You are 21 when it revisits you. Like a love-lost ex insistent on re-entering your life after much-needed time apart. No amount of paint or wallpaper you find is thick enough to cover it. Every time you try, every time you're forced to find a new roof, the speckled shades of green still seep through these thin London walls. Gosh. <laughs> oh, hello. I'll, I'll bring it. I'll bring it back down. I promise. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I realized, I didn't realize how um, raw the footage would be. I thought there'd be a lot more <laughs> editing. <laughs> Hence the um, uh, um, like, 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 um, but, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read, um, the, poems, the poem I'm going to read um, is a poem in two parts. Um, it is... So we started uh, writing um, about some of these things at the workshop with Teresa. 
Um, and so one of the poems is, well, one part of the poem um, is what's called an erasure poem, where you have a, bod you have a block of text and you black out um, sections of it to create your poem. Um, and there is another that I am into, but I'm, I'm, I'm really showing myself up in it. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be breaking up this erasure poem with um, other sections from the poem. So technically it's two parts, but the two parts are intermingled. Nadine's story. Nadine, 52, and her 16-year-old daughter live rented. Despite working two jobs, Nadine struggles and is forced to cut living. Learning how to split myself, double my body because both my, both my jobs need a whole me. My rent is over half my month, so that's where most of me goes. It's hard to need. I am cutting the best I can, but there are times we can live on. Learning to pay the nearest pound because minimum payment is nothing paid. We budget on we budget on we budget out good and it's rare that I buy anything full price. We budget our food and it's rare that I bu that I buy anything full price. I shop around to take all I can get. Learning to slice the toothpaste tube in two because my teeth shouldn't look like my bank statement. My rent was taking up such a huge chunk of me. No one should have more than a third of their minimum. Learning how to brush with salt because clean is essential but fresh is a luxury. There should be places you can afford to eat. Come, how can it be a living wage if you can't afford to live on? Thank you. You forgot to bring it down. <laughs> It's all right. Okay. Um, so this is about so this is about Denmark actually. Um, like I spent first eight years of my life there, um, and we go back kind of often. Well, every summer or every other summer. And my aunt actually has like lived in the same flat in the same block of flats um, since I can remember. And I'm always really fascinated with people who like stay in one house and like have all their memories there. And you know, but yeah. So this is called the girl grew. The house is too heavy for floating. Dad uses a spare duvet to sleep on the couch, bedroomless, tied down to the sofa. Two cups broken in the sink, a glass cup that shatters in the embrace of a too small mug. Drunk Ahmed keeps throwing his empty bottles out of his window three floors above. And then he stumbles down the stairs and chases the children, screaming his name. Suhaib falls out of the window he isn't afraid of bones breaking. He has faith he'll be kept together. Ahmed tells the children he'll eat some of them for breakfast and some for dinner. And today's game for the children is guessing how many bottles of alcohol he has emptied. He looks you up and down, wanting. He licks you up and down. He looks you up and down, licks his lips, wanting to eat you until you fantasize about growing teeth out of your fingers and draining his face of blood. Touch is touch, but fist isn't touch, says auntie. Fist is one punch away from death. And choke isn't touch, says auntie. Is not love, is not love, is not. Imitate Suhaib, 
Take one step out of the window. Race Ahmed's empty bottle on its way down. Mama is dyeing her fingertips orange in the kitchen. Turning into the sunset, nobody opens their curtains for. She can't save you. Thank you. It's amazing to be reading with such um, incredible poets. Um, so, the question we were asked was, what are the current issues? And oh, thanks, Gabriel. I also didn't realise it was going to be so raw. But I'm like, yeah, because the thing is, like, you know. Um, uh, the question we were asked was, what are the current issues with private renting um, and what could change in the future? And I, I only have one answer to this, really, um, which is building safety. Um, the current system of regulation does not, is not fit for purpose and buildings are being thrown up all across the country and have been for the, at least the past 10 years made of materials that aren't safe. Um, you'll all have seen the footage of the fire in Bolton on Friday um, when 100 students um, risked their lives escaping from building that went up in flames in a way that shouldn't happen two and a half years after Grenfell. Um, since June... We've had Barking, Worcester Park, Crewe, Clapton, and now Bolton. Um, so I hope you forgive me for just really hammering home the point that this really should be an election issue. We're not hearing about housing or building safety from politicians at the moment. So please do write to your MP um, and, and follow what's happening because they are taking us for fools. Um, and yeah, our safety is at risk. Um, Anyway, sorry, <laughs> that's my little stump speech. Um, this poem is called Budget. How quickly understanding is doomed to fail at the sudden turn between question and statement, investigation and proclamation, science and propaganda. Tonight, we must use all our tools, deep breaths, diazepam, watch the world from far away clutch at loved ones and pay attention to the orange sky. I thirst for the real, but would like to be kept from its cruelty, its smoke. You may thirst for different things, for water, papers, hair straighteners. Once I cycled through these streets, past cityscapes of square clad buildings. Tell me now your rules for burying the dead. Thank you. Um, oops, what have I done? All right, so um, Gabriel and I responded to the, the same thing during the workshop, and so I'll, I'll read my poem, and it's titled Learning. Oops. I'll just leave it. <laughs> Learning how to dip my plants in water so I can watch something bloom if not my pockets. Learning how to ask my mother if she's okay when I see her crying, my ears ready to become a bucket she can pour her sadness into. Learning to pull the chicken like a piece of gum so the protein will stretch for more days. Learning to stop excluding my stomach in the budget, you can only train hunger to be patient for so long. Learning to fry my purse so my money sticks to the skin and never escapes. Learning how to slice the rent in two parts so the other part can take a nap without fear of eye baggage. Learning to stop dreaming about shouting at the landlord. 
Learning how to stop dreaming about my landlord color pinned to a wall. Learning to resist scribbling my hurt on the wall. Is there a point instead of a warm hug I'll be charged for cleaning? Learning how to tear the walls when they feel like they are eavesdropping on my sadness. Learning how to rebuild them back in time for another tenant viewing. Learning it's okay to hate a country that doesn't love me. Learning it's okay to love myself. Learning that home is wherever my breath takes up space. Learning that my existence is my book of rights. Learning to ask myself if I am okay, especially on days I am not. The fourth um, and last um, conversation was on social housing, and afterwards we're going to hear from Amal and Serafima. What is the current issue? What are the current issues with social housing, and what could change in the future? So I think probably the first question to ask is, does anyone know just how many um, homes were built for social um, housing 2007 slash 2018? I do. Do you know? I do. <laughs> How many? 6,400. Oh my gosh, you're such a nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no one's going to get this. <laughs> I should have known that you're good at it. Wait, is that nationwide? <laughs> yeah, that was the number of social homes built for rent. So a lot of new developments will have a combination of private homes for sale, um, sort of socially rented homes or no affordable housing which is which is actually up to 80% of market rent so it's not really social rent it's, yeah. it's you know 80% of market rent in Camden or Westminster or Kensington Chelsea it's not <laughs> anything that anyone can afford but then um, the actual number of homes for social rent which is supposed to be cheaper is is often very low so yeah anyway sorry sorry to steal <laughs> statistic too, but, <laughs> but it's shocking isn't it six and a half thousand homes I'm not sure if that's in England or in the UK might be in England. Yeah, it might be in England. Which is still not enough because you had in the same period you had two hundred seventy-seven thousand homeless people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've read the same report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and shelters proposing over the next twenty years for three point one million more social homes to be built, but of course that comes at a cost. What do you think of those figures? Like, do you think that, yeah, what change do you think that would bring in any way? What, more social housing? Yeah, so that's what Shelter's report is. They're proposing for 20 million over, um, sorry, sorry, for 3.1 million so more social homes built over 20 years. Um, they separated, they kind of, um, kind of separated who the, those homes would be for. So 1.27 million would be for the homeless um, or those in worse conditions or in ill health. Um, 691,000 would be for older renters and then 1.17 million would be for those trapped in unaffordable and secure private renting. So wh what are your thoughts on, on that or what do you think in terms of the current situation with social housing or the future of social housing as a whole, if there's any one of those you want to comment? I think that would, yeah, I, f I feel like that, that would definitely take a lot of the pressure off um, yeah, it would not, not take not to the pressure, that's the phrase I'm looking for. It would, it would make things easier um, in terms of housing people, but then the question that comes to mind is where are people going to be housed? What choice 
what choice or what rights do people have over where they're mm. where they're placed and what kind of what kind of new properties are we talking about? Because you know, an organisation or a charity like Shelter can say, okay, well, we need we need these many new builds, but then but then um, the but then once once these things actually happen, who's doing the building? Is this are these like private contractors? Mm. How much are they planning on saving because they're not going to because they're not going to directly profit? Oh, the the government isn't going to directly. I don't know the pe the people who profit from the private sector. I, I'm not like too well versed in like the in like the mm. intricacies of it in it, but those that benefit from the private sector aren't going to benefit from the social housing as much. And so how so there are going to be various ways that they're going to try and cut costs, whether that's like reducing the size of these of these buildings, cheap, cheapening the materials, like whatever. Um, I mean, if if like so, my, my sister's just done um, her just finished her architecture degree at uni, right? And some of the some of like the the things that she'd come out with about you know the quality of homes and things. I think how is this possible in a first world nation <laughs> in the twenty first century? Like um, cheap 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 materials that like like the buildings are actually like lacking structural integrity because of the materials they're using yeah. and that sort of thing. So. If already we've got to the point where there are so many houses being built mm -hmm. using cheap materials, who's like who's to, who's to say that that what, that a portion of these, if not if not all of these new builds, are going to be built using quality materials in a way that's structurally sound? That is providing the amount of like space per person that is mm -hmm. that is requ that is required by like by um, I think ar architectural bodies and like you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder. I wonder how much this is going to. I wonder how far this is actually solving the problem versus um, fixing the windows of a burning house. Like, yeah. Yeah. So there's something about quality, isn't there, and like the need for it, for housing to be really valued and for it to be considered important and for it to be invested in properly. And I think that's a sort of. It's, it feels to me that's the kind of shift that needs to happen. Is that and looked like it was going to happen for a while, and then obviously everyone's now like preoccupied with mm. the word I will not say. It's that word free zone. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think, that, I think there really does need to be a shift, doesn't there, about like how, what, yeah, what, what do we provide citizens as a society? What, what, how do we, and do we invest in that? And, and it should be quality. And, and actually, if people are accessing social housing, should they be forced to be on a waiting list for 10 years in order to get a tenancy that only lasts two years? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, how do you calculate need? And do we want to, do we agree that we should subsidise the cost of, or that the government should subsidise the cost of building? And, and actually they get the money back, right? Because whenever they build, whenever you build a new social housing development, it's done with loans, right? And they're not, there's this sort of myth that it comes from the taxpayer, but it doesn't really. The, they're paid back over time by the rents of the people who live in them. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of those people will claim housing benefit, but some of them won't, you know. So anyway, I, I just feel like there, ha there does have to be a kind of national conversation about like what we invest in and for who. And yeah, I think housing is really fundamentally important and you can't build like sustainable communities without it. Yeah, I was, I'm trying to find this article, but it was also suggesting making land cheaper. Because mm. apparently with, um, with um, local councils, if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're building a, a home, a percentage of it has to be affordable housing. But then that definition is not clear cut because at the end they pr um, profit is prioritised. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I was, yeah, so I definitely agreed when you were talking about um, 
profit as well, who is profiting off it. Because if the, um, yeah, if the, whoever is built, if the building, I'm trying to like think of like the actual word, the building organization. The, association. Not, not housing association, but whoever is building the, the houses. Mm -hmm. the developer. Sorry? The developer? Yeah, the building developer, that's the word. Um, if the building developer is not going to, um, if the, if the land is so expensive and the building developer doesn't see that there's going to be an immediate profit, then profit is prioritised over the amount of affordable housing they're supposed to build. And I can't remember what location um, this was, but only about 4% of the, of, the, um, of the houses, of the new houses that have been built there are affordable. And I'm trying to... I, yeah, I can't remember the area. If I find it, well. But only about 4% of it was affordable, which is kind of a, appalling um, in some ways. So, yeah, so also it's kind of like starting from the ground up, making sure land is cheaper and then affordable housing is prioritised and kind of a, a boomerang. And going back to private renting as well, because people are kind of shut up private renting because they can't afford it and then they need social housing. So it's also sorting out that problem um, as well, rather than just putting bandage on, on the wound that would only just get bigger. Um, how does this relate to the... Um, I'm just curious about the connection between this and the right to buy. Um, so would... Yeah, what... I don't know, this is... So this, this, this has been, like, in my mind for a while, but, like, when... If pe people living in social housing have, like, the right to buy their homes after, after a certain amount of time with a discount, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so pe people, people, have people have taken up, but then that's taking homes out of circulation what I don't know I wonder I wonder if there's this might this might sound a bit too communist in it but I wonder if there's a way of I don't know in 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 an imagined alternate future for like the government to take those homes back and put them back into circulation within social housing or Obviously, it's tricky in it because, like, you're now you're you're now like, okay, we're gonna fix we're gonna fix homelessness by taking your homes. But I don't know. I want. I don't know. I I just yeah. I feel like unless unless there's some kind of like clawing back or um, some kind of like draconian regulation somewhere, then I don't know how if this is a problem that can be solved in the next like, generation or two. I don't know. The other thing that Shelter proposed with regards to that is um, people giving up their empty, empty um, homes. Yeah. Which is something that came up a lot after Grenfell, and mm. that people are also not sure about that. Yeah. As well. That's the thing. If it's empty, then like you're not using it. There are only like how many houses are you going to sleep in at one time? Like, you know, pick one because if you've got two, someone else has got. There's someone else with none. Um, and in that one house, they're not. These aren't like bungalows that people are hoarding, right? These are like legit houses that you could split into like two or three flats. Yeah, possibly. wealth is weird, isn't it? Because so, yeah. once people accumulate things like that, they don't want to let them go. It's mm. weird. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want to crawl back homes from individual homeowners, you know, who bought under the right to buy. But there, are, there are some kind of cap on those sort of property. You know, you hear, the, hear about those people who own, like, you know, a thousand properties in Sussex, in, in you know, in, in, the, in Worthing or whatever. Yeah. And they are, like, essentially slum landlords. I mean, that's what social housing was set up in, originally to combat, was to try and kind of combat slum um, landlords and to try and raise living standards. And it used to be somewhere 
you know, social housing used to be like, you know, people used to be really proud to live in, in a lot of developments. Um, but now because of, you know, I guess because there's so little social housing available and because so much of it isn't looked after properly, mm. you have this kind of residualisation where it's just you have like these kind of small pockets of social housing surrounded by homeowners, especially in rich boroughs, you often have like... I live in one of those. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say this. Really? So I live in Go one on. of those. So we live in social... So, so basically yeah. we live in like a new development. Mm -hmm. um, so I live in West Drayton. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I live in West Drayton. It's a very, very suburbia, very suburban. Mm. And so what they did was they built this new thing on top of an army base. Oh, right, okay. I feel weird every day. It's on top of an army base. <laughs> um, so basically, so uh, we, we'd been on like these lists for so many years. You know, locator where you bid for houses? Yeah, yeah. So many years. And then finally, so moving from place to place, and finally they said, like, we got you a house that's, like, going to be yours. You can have it. And we didn't, you don't get to choose where you go, right? So oh, they right, just yeah. kind of tell you where to go. So it was West Drayton. And I remember my mum just being, like, I do not want to go there. Yeah. Because you just hear, like, oh, there's no people of colour there. There's no people. It's just completely just white people. And they don't, you can't live, you know, it's going to be crazy. But um, once we got there, it was, like, a, a new development. So it's supposed to be half social housing and half um, private renters or, like, private... Um, home buyers, sorry, people who buy their homes. Um, and the, the thing that I find really, really interesting is, so for all of us, they, so there are certain regulations and things that you have to do, right? So things like your grass being cut, right. they come around and they will literally like be like, your hedge or whatever has gotten to, you need to cut it. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's wild, it's truly very wild to me, but it makes sense now, because it's like, okay, social housing, uh, it has this thing where it's like, people don't want to buy homes around it or don't want to be near it because it's like, oh, drugs or gangs mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And so um, kind of, so we're at the back. Right, so the social housing is at the back and at the front you have like these flats and you have like the office and it's really weird every day going through and seeing it and it's like a garden kind of place so that you have like, it's beautiful and they like keep up with it. But like when we call for something like, okay, this is broken, this is broken, people like, it just doesn't get fixed, you know? So it's like having to deal with the same problems but a really, really lovely exterior, a very, very peaceful exterior. So it's, it's always been, yeah, because we're always going through this, like, oh, we need to email this person, we need to email that person. Um, but stepping outside of it and being like, but we're really in suburbia, like, this is the suburbs. But it's the same thing. <laughs> it's exactly yeah. the same thing. It's so annoying to hear yourself talk. Oh, my God. Oh, did I just break it? Okay, stay there. All right. Um... So, this is called Rooms Remembered. Okay, my scarf is falling. Let me just fix it. Okay, I'm good. Okay, Rooms Remembered. One. All I remember about Seaton Road and that bedroom are boys. Watching and being watched by them. The one that stood at the end to see which house was mine as I walked, listening to Kanye's streetlights, slowly in the rain so he'd get tired, but he never did, so I nicknamed him Stalker. And his brother, who used the road to get to the park, who caught me staring at him from behind curtains. I watched him like I watch anything that frightens me, like the rat that came in from the back door, and my mother who screamed at my sister, why don't you just kill it when you first saw it? And then considered packing up, believing nothing could be salvaged. 
Before that, years back, another stalker. It didn't matter how fast I walked or which route I took. I couldn't save myself. I was 14. He was in my inbox professing his love the same day he followed me on a bicycle. All I remember about that bedroom is hiding and then being found and hiding only to be found. Two. All I remembered about Hanover Circle and that room are maggots. Waking to the tuna baguette still in its packaging, sprouting their tiny white bodies, their noise in unison enough to wake me, the violence of throwing them from my window after their invasion of my room, a box. I abandoned it for a week when Nivikar died, afraid he was hiding to avoid the grave, afraid I'd send him back. The room wasn't big enough. He followed me into my sibling's room, found space in the cupboard which, stressed, which stretched across the wall, and I couldn't take my eyes off all night, scared closing them would result in him sliding that door open to say, now I can breathe. There was a picture of his mother in the paper crying. When the landlord told us to leave, I couldn't find the letter written at 10 to a 20-year-old me. Maybe I had known the moving to come and had left instructions to make it easier, how to leave the room and the death still in it, how to belong elsewhere and forget. Thank you. I just wanted to mess with it, just for fun, because everyone else did. <laughs> um, no, actually, hang on, wait, I'm going to... Ooh, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Ah! I'm pregnant. <laughs> so, you know, it just goes to your head. Um, this poem is for Teresa, um, which, well, I wrote it as... Um, Teresa invited me to take part in an, an event she organises called Rap Party, which is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant event. Um, and I wrote this um, for Rat Party. Um, and before I do, I, I was thinking about how to answer this question of, of, you know, what needs to happen with social housing. And I suppose the, the only thing that, that really is, is needed is more homes. Um, and this poem is kind of about my experiences of growing up in West London in, in social housing. And I suppose um, the reason I'm reading it tonight is partly for Teresa, but also because I, I just there's a sense for me of, you know, there have to be homes for people like us. You know, there have to be, in the society that we want to build, um, or the society I want to live in, and there have to be enough safe homes for all. This poem is called Ode to Aretha. When strangers ask me where I'm from, I want to tell them I was born on my mother's red Persian carpet in a baptism of song, scorched by seance fire, and later my brother's love of matches. I want to tell them I come from a place of clambered over walls, hands torn by glass in tar-like teeth, where girls in stonewashed jeans, black belts and corkscrew perms scold buildings with graffiti in technicolor arias. I want to tell them how I come from wistful living rooms, how I stood covering the waterfront as windows smashed in games of dare, where the gospel didn't just mean truth, but whole Sundays spent in prayer a heart swell of psalms, bind us together, O Lord. I want to tell them I come from a place that turns screams to metallic lullabies, slits pillowcases to hide insignias of benzes, beamers, and school reports, followed by the solemn refrain of the truant officer. 
When strangers ask me where I'm from, I want to tell them I come from women who can't afford to stop singing, who when they look out of the window, see someone else's breath on their shoulder that keeps reminding them it's too soon to forget the interrupted cadence of leaving. When strangers ask me where I'm from, I want to tell them I come from a time of untamed canticles, blood rushing to my ears as I listened to voices of women who'd seen it all. Billy, Aretha, Ella, the sweet gospel of their album saving me from the corners of the redemption hymnal, a hard red-backed book, better designed for games of knuckles at the back of church. I want to tell them I come from bedrooms where bunk beds are stacked in rows of pine, where girls to whom hip-hop has been forbidden learn the meaning of crossover acts, swap clothes on weekends for Cypress Hill sweaters, scuffed up DMs, strappy dresses, played shirts, sit smoking in dark hideouts on Camden Lock. I think of us way back then, eyeliner in thick flicks like Nike ticks, in clubs out late, so young we'd be stopped by bouncers, bartenders, ID'd, mistaken for the kids we no longer were, and later how we'd dance, our toned bodies slinking, around clubs to fat beats with Moss Def singing, let me tell you about this girl, a girl who could have been, we thought, us. When strangers ask me where I'm from, I like to say I'm from a room made of sound, that bounce in the note, the way it flexes upwards and back, a key change repeated like a beat. I want to tell them my longing has roots. My longing is one step ahead, that I come from the waterfront. I'm watching the sea. I want to tell them I was born of secular psalms, the notes high-pitched, unraveling. I want to tell them there is a place. There are ladders made of song. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. We have come to the end of the night. Please give a warm round of applause to all the poets that read today.